Well, good morning. I realized when um, Austin came up and made announcements and then he um, kind of went out the door and headed up to New York City, out of all of our pastors and directors with Austin leaving, it leaves me. Um, everyone's away. And um, so it is an interesting week for us at Bible Fellowship. I saw people walking around looking for bulletins. There aren't any. Um, we have no office. Uh, not only do we have no office, but we went to um, move our copier on Thursday. They went to plug it in, and the copy comp copier company said, you need a 220-volt, 20-amp line, and this building doesn't have it. So um, we went to plug our phones in when we first moved out, and they said, um, these phones are not compatible with what's in the wiring in this building. And then we went to plug our computers in, and they said, you have no Ethernet cables compatible with the system that you have. So it, um, it has been a very interesting week. But you know what? God is in control, and we've been waiting for this day to come. So we will, you know, we will survive it. We'll look back in about five years and be able to say, do you guys remember when? And, um, but now we're in the midst of it, so it's, um, it's exciting. It's going well, and you can see the changes that are around here. So I just want to encourage you to ask. And I also want to apologize if anybody has sent an email or left a voicemail or something and nobody's gotten back to you because it's probably just somewhere out there. And um, we'll get through it all. And I also want to give one disclaimer here as well. As I'm going through the book of Amos, um, I know Gary, when he read the scripture earlier, just introduced himself as a layperson. But um, he has a little bit of an advantage. I haven't taken Hebrew in over 20 years. And um, Gary is a Hebrew professor. So when it comes to pronouncing a lot of these words, go with his pronunciation, not mine. But um, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together as a church family. And Lord, to, to open your word and to learn from it. And Lord, not only that, but to sing praise to you. And Lord, also as we give of our offerings, offerings, Lord, it's an act of worship as we give back to you. Father, I pray that our hearts would be in the right place today. Help us to surrender ourselves before Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would do a great work within us. And as we read your word this morning and as we study it, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and, and Lord, change us. Transform us into the image of your Son and help us, Lord, to come before you with humble hearts, with repentant hearts, before our great God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be jumping into a study on the book of Amos. Now, I can say this, I know that if we were to have a lineup right across the, um, the, the um, platform here, and by the way, if you would like a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. Our ushers would be glad to give you one. We have plenty of Bibles, and um, you can take it home as our gift to you as well if you um, would like to take it home. But if we were to take Amos, the prophet Amos, and put him in a lineup and line him across the stage here and have everybody dressed in their garb of 3,000 years ago, nobody in this room would be able to pick out Amos. Now, that doesn't say a whole lot because we could put Jesus in a lineup up here and nobody would be able to pick out him either. But what I do want to emphasize is I have a feeling that for the prophet Amos, he's not going to make it into too many people's top 10 lists of the most familiar Bible characters. Not many people know a whole lot about the prophet Amos. And uh, Amos was one of the minor prophets. Uh, there were 12 minor prophets. And it's not like baseball where you think, well, you know what? If Amos was just a little more talented, he would have made it into the majors. The minor prophets are called the minor prophets because their books are a little shorter than the major prophets. 
and their content is a little less broad than what's covered in the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. As we get into the book of Amos for about a seven-week series, I think it's going to help us to understand a little bit about biblical history and where the minor prophets fall in biblical history so we can really start to understand a little more about who Amos was and what his message really meant. Well, as we go back in biblical history, it was, um, we had the 12 tribes of Israel. They were united and expanding under the kingships of kings like David and Solomon. And then in 931 BC, King Solomon died. And when King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king in replacing Solomon. And shortly after Solomon died and Rehoboam became king, what happens was the, king, the nation of Israel divided. And it was known as the United Kingdom prior to that, not like England, Scotland, Wales, but we had the United Kingdom with all 12 tribes. And then just after 931 BC, under Rehoboam, the kingdom divided into two, into the northern kingdom of Israel. There were 10 of the tribes of Israel within the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, consisting of two of the tribes, of the original tribes of Israel. And what we see is when Rehoboam was king, and the initial king over you know, Israel, when they divided, Rehoboam stayed king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel was by the, was the name of Jeroboam. Now, to give you a little background, it helps us to understand that these two kingdoms were constantly facing periods of animosity with one another, but after Jeroboam and Rehoboam, help remember now, if this is like 930 BC where we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the ministry of Amos came in about 760 BC. So you have a period of about approximately about 175 years or so between when Rehoboam and Jeroboam became king and this message we're going to look at today from the prophet Amos. But what happened was there was a series of kings that came in after Jeroboam and after Rehoboam into both the northern and southern kingdoms, and not many of those kings at all were very faithful to the Lord. So we saw these kingdoms as they split moving further and further away from faithfulness to God. I'm going to put a chart up on the screen here. And whichever side you're looking at, I'll try and go back and forth between each of them. But what you see here, here's um, David and Solomon in about 1000 BC. Solomon died in 931 BC, and that's where we have this little squiggly line right here, right here on this screen here. And that's where the kingdom split. And now you see the northern kingdom of Israel is right up here. It extends over to 722 BC when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. Now, you see that we have the minor prophets are in this orange color. Here we have Amos, who we're going to be looking at in this series, about 760 B.C. And a close contemporary to Amos was the prophet Hosea, another one of the minor prophets, who ministered, and his message was to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, here you have the southern kingdom on this gray line on the bottom, and that is the nation of Judah, and we see that this line extends all the way out here to 586 B.C., and that's when the Babylonians came in, and they conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, took the people, the majority of the people, back to Babylon in exile. They returned in 538 B.C., 
and here they have the period of the return, and you'll see this grouping of minor prophets that their ministry was to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, there were 12 minor prophets, and you might say, well, how come if there's, you know, what about these other ones? Well, you have Obadiah, Jonah, and Nahum are three minor prophets, and their messages were preached to not Israel or to Judah, but to foreign nations such as Edom and Nineveh or Assyria. So this just gives a little bit of a timeline. We can see where, where Amos falls on this timeline. Now, um, it helps us to remember as well that these two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, in this period of time after Solomon, oops, after Solomon, we're in, this whole period here, we're in a constant state of warfare with one another. And the hatred between these two nations would have been growing throughout that whole period of time. And now, all of a sudden, in around 760 B.C., God gives his calling to this shepherd. That's what Amos was. He was a shepherd. And he's sending this shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah. The Bibles we're going to read in a moment. He's from a town called Tekoa, which is just outside of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. But God is sending this southern shepherd up into the northern kingdom to a very hostile crowd to proclaim a message of judgment. Would not have been an easy task for our friend Amos. And he would not have been a very popular prophet when he goes up into the northern kingdom of Israel. Let's take a look at verse 1. I want to read verse 1 for us. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, by the time he came on here, what we will see, obviously, the succession of kings. We don't have Rehoboam anymore reigning in Judah. We have different kings in the north. It mentions an earthquake. And uh, this message was preached by Amos two years before a major earthquake that took place in this region. That's one of the things that helps scholars put a date to when this message came. But it's pretty amazing that the message was preached and recorded prior to that earthquake taking place. Now, in verse 1, Amos is called a shepherd. We're going to see, not today, don't worry, we're not preaching seven chapters, but we're going to see when we get to chapter 7 that Amos is referred to as a grower of sycamore figs. So he's a shepherd, he's a farmer of figs, but one of the interesting things, the Hebrew word in, in, in verse 1 that calls him a shepherd was not the typical word for a shepherd. The shepherds were very poor people, but this word basically was the word given to people who were managers or overseers of shepherds. So here we have Amos was most likely kind of like the ancient version of the middle class today. He wasn't rich, he wasn't poor, but here was this shepherd that now all of a sudden was given this vision from God and to go told, told to go and preach it to a nation that was very hostile to where he was living. And was, as can you can imagine, as Amos travels from the southern kingdom of Judah, goes up into Israel, and he appears in Israel as a prophet, the people of Israel were probably expecting a very condemning message. I mean, here's, a, here, here's a, an unknown prophet coming up from the land of their biggest enemy, and he's coming up to deliver a message. Let's look in verse 2 to see how he starts out. 
It's on the screen here. He said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherds pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Okay, Amos comes up again. They're probably expecting this difficult message that they're going to hear. And what does he say? He says, the Lord roars from Zion. When's the last time that you roared a compliment to someone? We generally don't roar a compliment. So now all of a sudden, this, this, this prophet starts out with his message, and he says, the Lord roars from Zion. Now, he throws out Zion. He throws out the word Jerusalem. Those people from Israel are starting to think to themselves, oh, no, this is not going to be a good message. Think about, picture going back to colonial Philadelphia in 1776. You have a whole bunch of colonialists there, you know, who are, you know, not loyalists to Britain. Philadelphia before they got conquered by the British. And all of a sudden, a man stands up on a platform and he starts speaking out loud with a British accent. And he says, the Lord roars from London. Now, what kind of a reaction or a welcome do you think he was going to get in Philadelphia at that time? You know, they're, they're probably going to heckle him and say, tell good King George to go jump in the ocean or something. Well, this is where Amos finds himself. He finds himself up in the northern kingdom, but his message, he starts out with, the Lord roars from Zion. So these people now were expecting a pretty difficult message from what he was going to say. I want to give a little more background, though, to help you understand the context in which Amos was ministering. I mentioned that Jeroboam was the first king of the, north, of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, what happened was when Jeroboam became king, he was paranoid. He was afraid that if his people from the northern kingdom went south back to Jerusalem to worship God, to celebrate the feasts, his concern was that they were going to start now building up those friendships with the people from the south, and they would see the worship in Jerusalem, and they would be drawn back, and the, northern, the two kingdoms could reunite, and Jeroboam no longer would have a kingdom to reign over. So what Jeroboam does, so the people wouldn't go back to Jerusalem, Jeroboam sets up two false centers of worship in the northern kingdom. Now remember, it was God himself who instituted the worship that his covenant people were supposed to worship in Jerusalem. He set up the Levitical priesthood so that the priests in the temple in Jerusalem were all from the tribe of Levi. So there was the Levitical priesthood established in Jerusalem, and that's where God's people were supposed to go to celebrate the feasts. Well, what Jeroboam does, he sets up these two religious worship centers, both in the northern kingdom of Israel, one in the town of Dan and one in the town of Bethel. Now, what we see in 1 Kings chapter 12 is that Jeroboam not only set up those two places of worship, but he built two golden calves, put one in Dan, one in Bethel, and he literally said, Israel, here is your gods who led you out of Egypt. Heard that before, didn't we? And remember how that went. When Moses, remember Moses went up on the mountain? People thought, where's Moses? He's not coming back. What did they do? They made a golden calf. And what happens? Moses comes back down the mountain. He sees the people worshiping these golden calf. Moses gets angry. But more importantly, God gets angry and brings judgment on the people. And here we are. 
that a couple hundreds of years later, we see Jeroboam establishing golden calves to be worshipped in the northern kingdom of Israel. He sets up a priesthood to lead the worship in these two places of Dan and Bethel with non-Levitical priests. So we see that Jeroboam led the people astray, but there was about 175 years between Jeroboam and Amos. And what happened in that 175 years? You had king after king after king who led the people further away from God. You had kings in that period like Ahab who established the worship of Baal in the northern, in northern, in the northern kingdom of Israel. So here we have God's covenant people are worshiping Baal rather than the God who led them out of Egypt, the God of their fathers. So we see that Amos is walking into this place that's just filled with rebellion, and we can understand why God's judgment was about to come down on the people of Israel. And this is where Amos starts out in his ministry. Now, as we go through this, one of the other things I'd like to mention is that as you look at the prophets, to understand whether it's the major prophets or the minor prophets, the concept of a covenant is really important to understand. You see God going way back, let's go back to Abraham, which was a significant covenant. God established a covenant with Abraham. Remember that he said to Abraham, he said, you will be the father of a great nation, you'll be many descendants after you. But he also, in that covenant relationship, basically says, you know, if you will obey me and follow me, I will be your God. He goes on again with Moses, and he gives Moses the law, he affirms the covenant, and he tells him, if you will follow me and if you will obey me, I will be your God and you will be my people. He tells um, Joshua, Joshua is about to go in to take the land after Moses. And he tells Joshua, what? Do not fear for, you know, if you follow me and you obey me, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will keep you safe. Do not fear. And then King David, a little later, comes onto the scene. And God gives David a covenant relationship again. And he says to David, he said, you know, if you follow after me with all your heart, and he prom gives him a promise. And the promise was that a king from the line of David will never cease to reign over God's people. And what happens? That was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, a legitimate heir of the line of David to reign forever in the line of David. So the covenant relationship is really important, and God values that covenant relationship. And yet, what starts happening is, we see the people of God constantly, just constantly breaking this covenant relationship that God had established. And as we go through the book of Hosea, remember I showed you on the screen, Hosea was just a, few, a number of years after Amos, preaching his message to the very same people. What does the book of Hosea show? It takes the covenant relationship that God established with his people and he relates it to the marriage relationship between husband and wife. And he shows that he, Hosea was the prophet. God told him to go marry um, a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And Hosea marries Gomer and Gomer continually leaves him to go pursue prostitution, committing adultery throughout their relationship and God correlates the same kind of adultery because now his covenant people were worshiping foreign gods and committing all kinds of rebellion against God and showing that his people were breaking that covenant relationship. 
I just, um, two weeks ago, I did a, a wedding here at the church. And it was, um, had a lot of fun. It was a couple that's newer to the church here at Bible Fellowship. And we went through the premarital counseling. One of the things that we do is we talk about in premarital counseling the significance of the covenant between husband and wife. That's something that, you know, God has established. So I, um, the story of this couple is a big, significant, it's a great story. Um, they're newer to the church. Um, the husband actually trusted Christ as Savior um, in our first two weeks of premarital counseling. And um, both of them had been married before. They came together, a little bit of a Brady Bunch thing going on. It was a lot of fun. And um, just seeing what God has done in their lives, I asked them if they would be willing to share their testimony. So in come, some of the weeks coming up, I'm going to have them share their testimony. But it's a, just a great witness of what God is doing here at our church. But as we look at this, we see this ongoing covenant relationship. And one of the things I really want to just, I hope, is that our relationships with God our personal relationships with God don't reflect the pattern or the cycle that we find in the books of the prophets. I want to give you, if you're on taking notes, I'm going to give you five words. I wish I made a slide for this, but I didn't think of it. I'm going to give you five words, and you can draw arrows almost like in a circle from one of these words all the way around to the next. The first one is faithfulness. See, the cycle of, the, of what took place with Israel is you would see a period of faithfulness where the people were following after God. If you draw an arrow, you can draw it to the next word would be rebellion. And consistently, the people rebelled against God. Then if you drew the next arrow, you'd have to draw it to judgment. Because of the rebellion of the people, God, who's a just and righteous God, would bring judgment on the people. If you bring the next arrow around, and this happened with Israel and Judah, you would see a period of repentance, where the people repented of their sins, and the next arrow going up, you can write one of two words. You could either write redemption or restoration. You can write both if you want. And what we see is the people would repent, and God was always faithful to redeem a remnant from the people. And then there would be again a period of faithfulness, but guess what came next again? Rebellion. And if you look through the history of Israel, you will see that cycle repeat itself time and time again. But you know the, part, the really sad part was? As you look over the centuries, the periods of faithfulness grew shorter, the periods of rebellion grew longer, and the periods of repentance were fewer and far between. And in 722 B.C., God had enough and brought judgment in a horrible way on the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel as the Assyrians came in. And then you would think that the people of Judah would say, oh, look at what happened to our brothers. We better get our act together. Judah never did, continued periods of rebellion. And in 586 B.C., God brought the Babylonian Empire in. They destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, and he brought judgment. But thankfully, he kept a remnant, and he restored that remnant back into the land. And then, as we look through, it follows through in the lineage to Jesus Christ, and we know what came from there. But you see, that's kind of a cycle that we see repeating itself time and time again. Now, we could sit here ourselves and say, well, you know what, I can't believe those people, man. Always rebelling against God. If I were back there, I'd have been faithful. Now, 
want to ask you to look inside your hearts. We live in a culture very much like the one that Amos was preaching to. How faithful is the United States of America today to God? We live in a country that is moving further and further and further away from God and increasingly becoming secular. Now, I don't want you to think that God is sitting up in heaven thinking, oh me, oh my, what am I going to do? You see, God doesn't look down with red, white, and blue glasses. God is not an American. God looks down and he sees the entire world. And you know what's happening, folks? Places like America, Canada, Western Europe, they're calling us a post-Christian culture. But in other parts of the world, where we used to send about 100 years ago, we were sending missionaries, Christianity is exploding. Talk about cycles. You know what they're doing now? They're sending missionaries back to us. You see, Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds, but not in our culture. If we were to go out, and what's the Great Commission say? Go and make disciples. God is sending us out into a culture much like the one that Amos was sent in to preach. Remember last week, Pastor John was preaching about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. People, when they hear the gospel message, they think, how intolerant. They think, how narrow. You see, people are not receiving the message that we have to share with open arms. But you know what? Some of them are. And we need to go to that culture. We need to go to our culture, to our generation, and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, just like Amos did so many years ago. The first point that I want to make this morning is this. What can we do with all of these oracles? Well, let the oracles of Amos guide you to follow God faithfully when others aren't. Now, you might say, by the way, you might say to me, well, what is an oracle? Well, Amos, in chapters 1 and 2, he delivered eight oracles. If you look the word up, oracle, in Webster's or on Wikipedia, it's going to say, a message believed to have been delivered by a God. Now, we are believers in God. We are believers in his word. So we can simply say an oracle is a message from God. And Amos delivered eight of them. He delivered the first six of these to foreign nations, not to his covenant people. He delivered the seventh to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he delivered the eighth to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, that was done with on purpose. Remember I mentioned the people in the north, they were expecting Amos to deliver this message of condemnation. And what does Amos do? He surprises them a little bit. And he doesn't start immediately condemning the people of Israel. He delivers these beginning oracles. As a matter of fact, we're only going to look at chapter 1 today. The five oracles that were delivered in chapter 1 are all to foreign nations not to the co God's covenant people themselves. But what he does do, he starts with those in the most distant relationship to God's covenant people. They have no familial relationship, not distance-wise. Then he moves a little bit closer to home, and he starts delivering a message to some nations that have a relationship to God's covenant people. And then he goes to God's covenant people themselves. Let's look at the first oracle. It's in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. This is delivered against the nation, what he's calling, it's an, an oracle to Damascus. I'll put it on the screen for you. Beginning in verse 3. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hezael and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from beth Adon. So the people of Aram will go exile to Kir, says the Lord. We see this phrase, and he, Amos uses that's the same phrase in each of the oracles. He says, for the tra three transgressions and for four. What he's basically saying here is, their sins were so many. You could take that Hebrew idiom for three transgressions and for four. It means enough is enough. Amos is telling him, God has had enough. Judgment is coming. The sins are way too many. Enough is enough. It's basically what it means. We'll see that in each of the oracles that we look at. Now, give you a little idea. Damascus is the capital city of Aram, which is modern-day Syria. So, as God is delivering this message, they're located just north of the northern kingdom of Israel. They've been in constant warfare with the people of Israel. Um, they've just dealt blow after blow in battles against them. Now, and they're also, you might hear them referred to as the Arameans. The Arameans were originally from Mesopotamia, and they migrated into the land of Aram, modern-day Syria. And in, this, in the passage I just read, God says that basically he's going to send them back to Kir. And God upheld his end of this because in 732 B.C., about 10 years before the northern kingdom Israel fell to the Assyrians, the Assyrians conquered Aram. And guess where they sent them into exile? Back to Mesopotamia. So here we see one of, God, one of Israel's enemies, the enemy of God's covenant people, the first oracle. God deals with them, sends them out of the land, and back into exile. The next one, the next oracle we have is found in verse 6. I'll put that on the screen. And this is delivered to the Philistines. Now, if you want to just remember, it might, should ring a bell. Um, David and Goliath, remember Goliath was a Philistine warrior. The Philistines, all through the period of David and Solomon, were Israel's enemy. They were just harassing them and warfare with them all the time. This is the Philistia that we see that, God, that Amos is speaking to in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, Gaza is one of the cities in Philistia, I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. Now, we see that, that Amos is delivering this message to the Philistines. And what does God say they're guilty of? He says they were guilty of capturing whole communities of people. And that's what the Philistines would do. They would go into just foreign nations. They would send raiding parties in. They would take captives, whole communities of people, and they would take them then over to Edom where they were sold as slaves. 
So God is condemning the Philistines for their treatment of other people as they would sell them into slavery. And as we look at this, what we find is that God's judgment really came through on the Philistines. We see that Judah in their warfare over those years dealt several, a number of severe blows against the Philistines. Assyria came down in the the early about 720s or so in that BC time when they came in and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. They also conquered a lot of Philistia, took quite a few of their towns, captured them. And then by 150 BC, the, um, the, Phil- the Philistines ceased to exist as a people. And I just read in verse 8, it says, And the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. See, they survived the attack of the Assyrians, but the remnant ceased to exist well before the time of Jesus Christ. So we see that God here was faithful in fulfilling his message, and he removed a second of the foreign nations that his messages were against. Now we have in verses 9 and 10, we have the third oracle that Amos delivers, and this one is against Tyre. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it will consume her citadels. And God was faithful, and he didn't spare Tyre. A little humor there. Um, actually, somebody between services came up and told me, Bob, wasn't it amazing? God didn't spare Tyre. I was like, oh, that is so weak. <laughs> but I went ahead and used it. But um, what we see here was that Tyre was the leading city of Phoenicia. It was a wealthy, it was a wealthy city. The Tyre was, on the, it was right on the port. It was right on the water. It was west of the city of Israel. And what, one of the reasons it was so wealthy was trading ships would come through Tyre as part of the Phoenician Empire, and they would tra- unload and offload goods there, and the city of Tyre became one of the wealthier cities. And now we see here that God is condemning the city of Tyre for the same sin that he con- condemned the Philistines for. He sold, Tyre was selling whole communities of people, again, to the Edomites for profit. And God was judging them for, his, for their treatment of other people. Now, did this come th- what happened with God's fulfillment? Well, the city of Tyre, it suffered greatly under the Assyrians when they came in and invaded. They were conquered completely by Alexander the Great and ceased to exist as a nation after that. They never came back. So we see one by one that God's judgments are coming true. Here's a map to show us what we're looking at. Here's the northern kingdom of Israel in the yellow, right in here. Here in the the pink, we see the nation, the southern kingdom of Judah. And as we look at this, what we see is we see the first one, if you remember, Aram was right up here, which is now Syria today. Then the second oracle was against the Philistines down in this part here, right along the coast, just off right next to Judah. And then we see the third one was against Tyre right up here which is not part of Phoenicia. And now we're going to move on to the fourth and fifth oracles. We see Edom is right down here, and it tells us Edom will be destroyed. You see where that's in location, a large border with Judah. And then Ammon is the fifth, 
and we see where Ammon is located right up here next to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is where we're talking with all these oracles. Let's look at the fourth oracle that Amos delivered in verses 11 and 12, and this is to the area that we see here on the bottom called Edom. Beginning in verse 12, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Teman and it will consume the citadels of Basra. So now we see that God is bringing this judgment against these, the people here of Edom. I mentioned earlier that when Amos gave his messages, he started out with people that had no relationship to the God's covenant people. He then moved it into people that had a relationship with God's covenant people. The people of Edom were the descendants of Esau. So you remember Jacob and Esau? Well, these are Esau's descendants. They had a relationship to God's covenant people. And God is really judging them. And the sins that they committed were committed really against their brothers, the Israelites, the people you know, obviously on um, Jacob's descendants. And if you look at this, what we see was that the people from Edom, they continually, they fought with the Israelites, God's people in war. It says they lacked compassion and they treated other people with fury. And God now is faithful to his prophecy against them because the Edomites were conquered by Assyria and then they were taken over for good by Arabs in the 4th century B.C. And the Edomites ceased to exist as a nation. And now we want to look at the last one. The last oracle starts in verse 13. And this one is delivered against the Ammonites. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Now, I forgot to put it up there for you, sorry about that. But as you see this, what we see here is that the people here of Ammon were just a cruel, cruel people. Not only were they conquering in battle, but it says they ripped open the pregnant women. And you see, God is judging this nation for how they treated people. And he even mentions the unborn children. The atrocities that were committed against other people were horrendous by the Ammonites. So God brings his judgment in. The Ammonites were conquered first by the Assyrians. A remnant remained. They were conquered again in the 6th century B.C. by the Babylonians, and they ceased to exist completely by the 2nd century. Remember that cycle I gave you, the circle I told you about, and I also I said in there that there was always redemption and restoration at the end? That was true for God's people. But what we're seeing here, it wasn't true for everyone. Because God's judgment on some of these foreign nations was final. They ceased to exist as nations, and they were never restored. Yet God was faithful to his own people. Now, remember I mentioned that Amos, the people in the northern kingdom, when this prophet Amos from the south arrived, they were expecting him to come in and start giving this condemning message against them. And all of a sudden, when this prophet Amos starts off his message, 
he starts putting down their enemies one by one. And he starts predicting the end of each of their enemies one after another. And all of a sudden, I guarantee you, those Israelites were like, hey, this guy's not all that bad. Hey, we like this guy. He was getting high fives. They were buying him drinks. Amos was becoming so famous, they named cookies after the guy. And he was loved. And see what was doing? This was a literary device on Amos's part. He was taking and he was attacking the enemies of God's covenant people of the nation of Israel. And they're like, yes. And everything he told about their atrocities was true. And the people were like, yes, they deserve it. Yes, they deserve it. One after another. And guess what happens next week? You have to come back to find out. <laughs> he delivers the final message against the foreign nations in Oracle number six. Oracle number seven, he zones in on Judah. And when he gets to Oracle number eight, he's talking about the nation of Israel themselves. You see, Amos had them going. He had them agreeing with him. And then he brings the message home. Now, as we look at this, we'll see a trend. As God is condemning each of these nations, yes, he's condemning everyone for what we can call a vertical relationship, their relationship with God himself. They were breaking, well, they weren't God's people, but they were disobedient and they were rebellious, and God's people themselves were continually breaking that covenant that God had established with them. But what God, what God used to measure the faithfulness of these people in chapter 1 was how they treated other people. You see, God was bringing judgment on them because of the wickedness of their hearts and the injustices that they were carrying out against other people. Now, what I'd like to do is give you the point here that I'd like, the second point I'd like to look at is that we are to move beyond tolerance to reconciliation. You see, we're talking now about violations of human rights. And if you think about it, in recent weeks, it's been so evident that in our country here in the United States of America, that we live in a country that is so, so divided. We live in a country that is filled with fear, a country that's filled with hate, and a country that is filled with racial tension. Much is very similar to what existed in the nations that Amos was preaching to. We are divided by political affiliation. We're divided by race. We're divided by sexual orientation. We're divided by so many other things. And I'm not telling us that we need to go out and condone sin. But what I think we really need to look at is what is it that is dividing us as a nation and we as a church have a responsibility to respond. You see, when we look at all this division in our country today, the best that our world can offer is to say, I need to tolerate you because you're different. What are our kids being taught in school? Tolerance. We see, when it comes to believers in Jesus Christ, when it comes to people who believe in the gospel message and know the power of the gospel, tolerance is not enough. Picture if you went home tonight and you were to say to your spouse, honey, I really tolerate you. What kind of response are you going to get? You see, when it comes to us as Christians, our responsibility is love. You see, our message is not, I tolerate you because you're different. 
our message has to be, I love you, even though we are different. You see, look at, today we just prayed for a group of people that were going to serve in New York City to minister to Muslims. Think about the fear that exists within America today towards Muslims. And what happens? It's driving us as a nation to two extremes. I was in, um, not only with Muslims, I was in Charleston, South Carolina just a couple weeks ago. And while we were there, we went down and we toured one of the southern plantations. And as we went through the plantation, we went through the, the slaves' quarters. And we saw pictures, we saw stories of what took place in slavery in the United States of America. And folks, we need to be ashamed of what's taken place within our very own country. Now, we have responses that take place here in, in, the, in the United States. It's, we tend to go to extremes. We tend to go to the extreme of either animosity because there's so much hatred. Now, we need to be able to step ourselves into the shoes of people who have suffered in ways that we haven't suffered. I mentioned slavery, but it wasn't that many years ago that we were segregated as a nation where we had segregated bathrooms and restaurants and buses, and that's in the history of the, our country. And just think, if you were on the receiving end of that treatment, generation after generation after generation, you're going to look at things differently. We need to be able to put ourselves into the shoes of other people and see things through their eyes. But sadly, what's ended up happening, people either respond with animosity. It leads to the atrocity that we've seen in recent weeks with police officers losing their lives. Men and women who are going out every day risking their lives to keep us safe. Now we have families who have lost fathers. We have families who lost husbands because of the hatred that exists. And what's happening is the response is coming out of hatred rather than love. Now, I mentioned that there's two extremes. One is animosity. The other one is apathy. And sadly, Christians fall into this category way too often. We might say to ourselves, well, you know what? Yeah, I know I'm white, but you know, I, I never had slaves. That happened 150 years ago. What do I have to do with that? And we fail to recognize that a whole group of people in this country had experienced generation after generation after generation of suffering and atrocities and prejudices. And if we look inside our hearts, no matter who we are, no matter what group of people it is against, we all have to admit that we have prejudices. And we need to be able to take those prejudices to the cross and ask God to forgive us of them. Because the church has no right to respond with hatred and animosity, and we have no right to respond with apathy. You see, when God looked down upon this earth 2,000 years ago, he saw a society that was filled with fear and hatred and discrimination. He saw Jews that hated Gentiles, Romans that hated Jews, and the list goes on and on and on. And you see, God didn't just sit up from above and deal with from afar. What happened? God himself put on human flesh in the incarnation. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He suffered. He died on a cross. Yes, he brought us individual salvation, the forgiveness of sins. But he also brought with him reconciliation. He brought the means for us to love instead of hate. And that's what the gospel message is all about. 
the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings the forgiveness of sins and it destroys dividing walls that exist. If you look in, it, in the book of Ephesians, it literally says, he broke the dividing wall that existed. He was talking there about Jew and Gentile. It's appropriate for any race. It's appropriate for any division that we have. Look at the political, like, look at the hatred that is out there because of political affiliation today. Christians, we have no right to treat people the way our nation is treating people because of the differences that exist. God is not Republican and God is not Democrat. God wants us to deal with love in this world. And as we look at things, I, I, I'll tell you, I had the opportunity myself. I'm asking all of us to step out of our comfort zone. Back in 2009, um, do you remember Celestan Musakura who preached here a number of times? A friend of mine from Rwanda. In 2009, we had plane tickets ready to go over to Kenya. And it was about, and it was, ironically, we were, he was preaching on forgiveness and reconciliation in Nairobi, Kenya. And the two of us were leading conferences in Rwanda on forgiveness and reconciliation. About a week or two before we left, they had the political, um, the presidential election in Kenya. And when the election went through, riots broke out in the streets. People were being killed in the streets. Well, here I was through my American eyes. I pick up the phone and I call Celestan. I say, hey, Celestan, we're, we're canceling our trip, right? And I'll never forget his words. He said, Bob, he said, our brothers and sisters need us more now than they ever have. I felt about this big. So we went over there together. Was I afraid? Yeah, I was. You know, um, I will tell you, I don't blend in real easily in Kenya. <laughs> and um, we were um, one night, it was nighttime. We were driving down the street. The four guys I were with were black Kenyans. Well, one Kesselasen from Rwanda and three brothers in Christ from, from Kenya. And we were in the car together. And all of a sudden, out under the road stepped three men in civilian clothes with machine guns. They point them at our car and they point us to the side of the road. So we go to the side of the road. And they looked in the car and guess who they looked at? Yeah, I can't even get a suntan, so I couldn't hide too well. They look in the car. And the guy that was next to me spoke in English, and these guys with the, the guns were speaking in Swahili, and they said, they want your papers. And then the next comment he said was, give them to them. So I handed them my papers. American passports are worth a lot of money around the world. You try not to let them out of your hands. Thankfully, they looked at the passports, they looked at me, and they waved the car on. We had no idea who they were. Now, was I scared? Yeah, I was. But for all of us, you know, I want to ask you, how many Muslim friends do you have? How many can you name by name? How many friends of a different color do you have? How many friends do you have that are divided by whatever division that exists in this country today? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone to show the love of Jesus Christ to people in this world who need it? Our country is at a time right now where it needs the voice of the church to be heard, to bring a message of love through the gospel of Jesus Christ when there's hatred all around us. Now, I want to close by asking you to consider two things. And those are this. One, ask for Christ-exalting courage to speak out on these challenging issues. Why would Christians want to hide the light of Jesus Christ under a bushel of fear? We need to ask the Lord to give us Christ-exalting courage. The second thing 
ask God to give us Christ-exalting compassion. You see, our world is preaching hate. You turn on the news today, you see people yelling back and forth at each other, and the best thing they can offer is tolerance. Ask God to give you Christ-exalting compassion. You know, it's going to come at a cost. Think about what it cost our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he entered into our world to extend love and forgiveness in a world that was filled with hate. It cost him his life. It might cost us stepping out of our comfort zone, building relationships with people who we're not comfortable with. I can guarantee that our team that's going up to New York City today is going to face times where they're out of their comfort zone, going to a culture that's so much different than our own, one which we've been taught to fear. And yeah, terrorism, it's a scary thing. But it doesn't mean that all Muslims are terrorists. It doesn't mean that we as Christians can treat our enemies with hate and fear when God calls us to love our enemies with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to look inside our lives, our hearts, and recognize the fear, the prejudices that exist. Lord, as we look around us, we know we live in a nation that is filled with fear. It's filled with hatred. It's divided. And Lord, you came and died upon a cross so there wouldn't be division. You came upon, to die upon a cross so that brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we were born, no matter what our race, no matter what our backgrounds, Lord, that we could become one in Christ. Help us, Lord, to love others the way you do. Help us to see people the way you do. Lord, help us individually and help us as a church to shine the light of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. And Father, may we advance the gospel through lives of love as we live differently from those around us and as we're willing to show who Jesus Christ is by our words and by our love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.